All right. Well, Jesus is coming again. You might not have heard me. Jesus is coming again. All right, there we go. That's right. Now, we, we don't need to make this a high school assembly. He is coming again, and we're excited about that. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24, Matthew chapter 24, we sense as Christians that Jesus is coming again. We feel it in our bones. We feel it in our spirit. We feel it in our hearts. And if you're a Christian here today, you know, as you look around in the world, you know um, that the time is drawing nigh for his return. And by Christian, I mean one who has understood that you are a sinner and are a sinner and in need of a savior. You can think back of that time when you came to that realization and you realized, I need a savior. And Jesus is that savior. Jesus is that one, as we celebrated earlier, we celebrated communion. We celebrated how Jesus was that perfect Passover sacrifice. He was that lamb, that, that one whose blood needed to be shed for the salvation of mankind. And by understanding that and realizing that that is the only way for forgiveness for us and understanding that in order to spend eternity with him in heaven, that that's what it would take and asking Jesus to come into our hearts to be our personal savior and have a relationship with him. If that has happened in your life, you're a Christian. And that means to be Christ-like and that we have literally taken a, a 180 degree turn away from the life we were living a life and a direction in which we were headed, an empty life, one filled with pain and despair, to now one filled with the riches of the Lord. A 180 degree turn, repenting, turning from our sin and walking in a life that pleases Him. Now, do we still fail? Do we still have setbacks? Of course we do. In this life we will. And you know, it's not all a bed of roses either just because you become a Christian, amen? In many cases, it gets way more difficult. We're promised that we will suffer through persecutions, and that's just a fact of life. We're promised that. But what we're also promised is a life with Christ. And we're also promised that he'll come back for us, and we're excited about that. Getting back to this current event that we're living in, in this world, and, and getting that sense of, man, things feel like they're just coming to a head. Would you agree? Looking around in our culture and looking around in our, our nation, looking around in the world altogether, we get this sense and this feel of, man, something big is happening. Deep down in our hearts, we may not know exactly, but we just feel, and as we look at the signs, and that's what we've been told to do um, in, in our, our study of the scriptures, is to look around and know the signs of the times, to, to understand the seasons in which we live for our, the return of our Lord. We're going to study today, the Lord Jesus himself will tell us that no man knows the, the day or the hour in which the Son of Man will return, but we're to know the seasons, and we feel like the season is near. We get that sense and that excitement, and that's what I want to instill in you today. If you don't already have it, I want to instill in you an excitement about the return of Jesus. It's one that I, meet, that I take very seriously. It's one that's very dear and near to my heart. 
It's one that I have spent much time instilling that desire into our youth group, our, our junior high, high school, and even college age. It's one that I feel that is very important for all of us. Why? Because we're going to learn today that having an excitement and a, an expectancy for the return of Christ is going to play a major role in how we treat each other too. So we'll see that as we go along. But Matthew chapter 24, if you're there, I'm not yet. I bet you thought I was. Matthew chapter 24, this passage of scripture is known as the Olivet Discourse. In fact, chapters 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse because this took place on the Mount of Olives. And the first portion of this Olivet Discourse, chapter 24, deals with the end times. Who better to hear about the end times than Jesus himself? He takes time to explain and go through some of the events that are even in our future. Some of the prophecy and the prophetic things that Jesus talks about actually have a double prophetic meaning. Uh, one that means that something happened in history and then one that will happen even in the future. And some of those references have even the same name and we'll see that as we get along. But would you pray with me just before we get started and just let's ask the Lord to majorly bless this uh, teaching as an encouragement. Father, we just wanna thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And Lord, you've promised to return to get your church. And Lord, that church is us, Father, ones who have uh, understood that we were sinners and in need of a savior. Lord, you're coming back for us and we feel it, we sense it, and we're excited about it, Lord. I pray that that excitement and that encouragement would just go out to every heart here today, Lord, and that we would just live in that expectancy of your return. Bless your word as it goes out today, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Well, chapter 24 of Matthew. Uh, again, this end times look, uh, Jesus, this, this chapter, he's talking to his disciples it's kind of divided into about three portions. I don't know how far we're gonna make it in the chapter today. I do have a couple of key takeaways that I think would be good for us today, but we'll just see what the Lord does. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, guys. I know it is. I, I don't plan on going any later than two o'clock today. So you guys are fine, you'll make it. Uh, hopefully your DVRs are set, um, but be that as it may, the first portion that Jesus talks about is verses 1 through 14 speaks of uh, the end times as it relates to all of the nations. And then chapters 15 through 36, it's specific to Israel. And then finally, verses 37 through 42, he has a message for the church. That's you and me today. Uh, specifically, um, how we are to be in the last days and in this time of this expectance of his return. And we definitely want to spend time there uh, as we get there. But verse 1 of chapter 24, here's the scene. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And uh, verse 2, And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another. That shall not be thrown down. Here's the scene. They've been walking around the temple, and the disciples are showing Jesus, look at this. Look how magnificent. I mean, the courts were made of marble. 
the floors. And then the furniture was just covered in gold. There was gold overlay everywhere. It sparkled in the sun. It was beautiful, and it was huge. It was mammoth stones, some 40 feet by 40 feet wide and, and 80 feet long. These stones were huge. They were enormous, and they were one of the most... Uh, Amazing things about that is that those stones were not carved there. They were actually carved in the quarry. Measurements that were so precise you can barely fit a piece of paper in between them. That's how precise they were. They were chiseled and hammered away on and, and formed at the rock quarry and then carried and, and brought to the temple so that when they were, per, they were put in place, not a sound of a chisel was made. Quietly put in place in the temple. That was by design. Covered in gold overlay, marble, marble floors and the courtyards, and everything. The temple meant everything to the Jews. In that day, it was the most amazing feat uh, building-wise in their day. The, the temple, everything had to do about the temple. They, they, they made proclamations on the temple. Oh, I, I, I promise on the temple that I will do this or go there or do this thing. It meant everything to them. And then Jesus says something very interesting to them as they're showing him, look, Lord, look at the majesty. Look at the splendor of this place. And Jesus says, yeah, as if they need to tell Jesus, right? But they, regardless, they are showing him. And Jesus says, he says, all these things, you see all this? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. How could that be? As they walked around and saw this magnificent temple, the thing that meant the most to them out of everything, to hear the words that these stones would all be crumbled down and it would all be leveled was just unspeakable. It was unthinkable. And so to them, they were just taken back by this statement. You're kidding, Lord. How could this be? We go on there, verse 3. They couldn't let it go. And verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, they're overlooking Jerusalem, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Who said anything about the end of the age? That wasn't referenced earlier. They thought in order for the temple to be leveled, like Jesus said, not one stone upon another, in their minds, that would be so catastrophic. It must be the end of the world that would make that happen. So they bring it up. They say, oh, tell us, when will be the sign of the end of the age? Because that's what it's going to have to take to take the, the temple down. In their minds, that's how high, highly esteemed the temple was in their view. It must be cataclysmic, end-of-the-world stuff that's going to make that temple fall. So tell us, Lord, when will these things be? And he says to them a few things that are very interesting. And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 4, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. 
it would be almost 40 years after Jesus said those words that that prophecy would come true. The Roman Empire came into Jerusalem about 40 years later, and as they were going through and they were pillaging and, and beginning to seize the, the city of Jerusalem, there was an order given by a general named Titus, and he said, do not destroy the temple. But in the rage and in the excitement of taking over uh, the city, a soldier threw in a torch, history tells us, into the temple. And that torch set the inside of the temple on fire. And as the furniture and all of the belongings and all of the things in the temple began to burn, the, the heat got so hot, it was so intense that the gold overlay on the, on the walls began to melt. We had molten gold literally going through the crevices of those stones of all the walls. And then as that took place, they began to realize that. And when they would come in and pillage and take all of the treasures, they realized, hey, there's a lot of gold in these stones. And they, they were not happy until each stone was pushed off to collect all of that molten gold and taking all of that. And they didn't stop until not one stone was left on top of another, just like Jesus prophesied would happen. Not even 40 years later, this took place. But he tells his disciples, he says, hey, many are going to come in my name. Many are going to, to basically come and be a counterfeit. He says, do not believe them. But as this happens, the end is not yet. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and there will be pestilences and earthquakes in various places. He begins to tell them, he says, these things are gonna to begin to happen as famines will go out throughout the nations. And we've seen that, history has shown us, history has told us of the famines of the nations. Uh, remember, this is, we're still talking about the end times as it relates to all nations right now in this section. Pestilence, diseases, famines, People, experts in the area say that famines are a direct result of population explosion. Did you know that it took until, it's estimated, until the year 1804 to get the first one billion people on the planet? That's how long it took. That's crazy. You're talking all the way back from Noah's day, Noah and his family, his sons and their wives to repopulate the earth after the flood. From that point all the way until 1804, that's how long it took to get one billion people. And now we have, uh, what, seven billion? So all the way to 1804, and then all the way until 2021, we have seven billion. It didn't take long from 1804 to this year to where we have so many people. And throughout the succession, it didn't take long, decades, every 20 years or so, they say that the population increases to another billion people. Isn't that fascinating? Why? What has happened? And, and they say that the direct result of famines, the people who suffer the most are third world countries. And we've seen that, history has shown us that. The Lord prophesied that, that there will be famines there will be pestilences, uh, diseases. And he also says there, and earthquakes in various places. And we have seen that as well. Verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation 
and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and betray one another and will hate one another. Do we see betrayals today? Do we see hatred today? Hatred on a scale that perhaps many of us, even in our lifetimes, we've never experienced, we've never seen. A divided nation we have before us, even today. Hatred for one another, hatred for the other side, for, for that party or for that group. We're seeing it, we're feeling it. And as Christians here today, we look around and we go, wow, Lord, wow, Lord, look, everything that you have said, we're seeing it, we're beginning to see those times. Hatred for one another, verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. We've seen history tells us of those events. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And that's true. Along with the hate, obviously, the love for one another, we've seen that dissipate. Love for one another growing cold. Verse 13 but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And that's a good point for you and I today. We look around in the world today and we get frustrated, but we get, if we're not careful, depressed. Despair can set in. We look around and go, man, look at the world we're in. But the Lord tells us he who endures these things, we will be blessed he will pour out his blessing upon us. He will encourage us, the lifter of our head. He'll give us hope, and he does give us hope. Goes on to say, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The gospel must be preached. The gospel is the good news. Jesus said that go forth into the uttermost parts of the world and preach the gospel. And that is what we're to do. What do we do in these times? What do we do in these times of uncertainty? These times where people are, are hating one another. We're seeing the hatred. We're seeing the divisions. We're seeing even, a, even us as Christians who we have hope and we know we have hope and we know where our salvation is. But even if we if we don't watch ourselves, we can even kind of fall into that. I know that's true with my own life, the more news I watch. And uh, I just can't help it, I gotta watch the news. I, I wanna know what's going on, but I have to constantly remind myself, you know what, I know who wins in the end. I know who wins in the end. The Lord Jesus wins, and I am in him because I've asked him to be my savior. I am in Christ. I'm a new creation, and I know the end of the story. Yes, trouble sometimes are coming, but what are we to do? We're to endure, endure and, and rest in the hope and the faith that we have accepted through him and preach the gospel. If not with our mouths, just through with our lives, just being that silent witness even at work or at school or around peers. People notice, people see. If you truly have the love of Christ in your life, it's gonna come out. You're going to have a deep, resounding joy, and you're going to have a solid foundation, and that will be seen by the non-believer. Did you know that? They know that, and they sense it, and they want to know deep down, what is it about you? Why aren't you freaking out? 
Look what's going on in the world. And that's our opportunity. I know who wins in the end, and I'm on his side. The Lord has blessed you with that ability, and he will meet you in that time of need. Oh, I don't know. I'm not, a, I'm not an evangelist. You know what? The Holy Spirit will give you the words. You step out in faith, and you share the gospel, and that's your opportunity. I know whose side I'm on. Jesus has chosen me before I knew him. He loved me before I even knew him. Great opportunity. We're moving into the next portion of the scripture, talking specifically to Israel, the end times as it relates to the nation of Israel. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. It goes back there in verse 15. He's talking to the Jews now. He's saying, listen, when you see the desolation of abomination, flee. The one that Daniel speaks of, he's talking specifically to Daniel uh, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 31. And if you take the time to read that, I encourage you to do so. But basically, here's what happened. In the temple, 170 uh, B.C., there was a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was a ruler in Syria. And he was a madman, crazy, crazy madman. But this ruler, he thought that he was the actual embodiment of the Greek god Zeus. He, that's who he thought he was. And so he demanded to be worshipped. Ring a bell? Okay, you'll start to see the parallels here in a minute. And then what he realized was that, you know what? People in Jerusalem are not worshipping me. I, I am Zeus. I am the Greek god Zeus, and that's what he thought. And so as he finds this news out, he finds out that the Jews in Jerusalem, they're not worshiping him. So what does he do? He goes and he raids Jerusalem, and he goes right into the temple, and he slaughters a pig, history tells us, on the altar right there in the temple. Now, you guys understand that pigs were deemed unclean by the Jew. So this is the ultimate, the ultimate disrespect abomination of the temple. And then he went on to do some other crazy, terrible things that we won't get into today with the priests and, and that sort of thing. Just a direct uh, smack in the face to the Jews to show them, guess what? I'm in charge. I am to be worshiped. Now that's what history tells us. That's a historical event that actually took place. But we're not just talking about history here. This will happen again. This will take place even in our future. The abomin abomination of desolation in the temple. We say, well, wait, there is no temple. Right. Not yet. We are told the Bible tells us that there will be one, a man who comes on the scene. He was, he'll be known as the Antichrist the man of perdition, he'll come on the scene and what he'll do is something very fascinating. He'll be a world leader. He'll be able to solve problems amongst nations that nobody has ever been able to solve. He'll come on the scene and he'll, he, the, the Bible tells us that he's a man of words. He's a great order. He'll be, he'll be able to explain things. He'll be able to get tribes and tongues and peoples that were always at war with one another to agree. And he will make a pact or a treaty with Israel. 
and Israel will welcome it. And he'll say, listen, build your temple. And he'll tell them right where they can build it. They'll agree, the Palestinians will agree, and the temple will be built. Now, keep in mind, we won't be here as the church. You know that, why? Because we'll be raptured up, we'll be snatched away. Jesus is coming back for his church and he will take us up to heaven. And once that happens, guess what? The Antichrist can reveal himself. See, we are not looking for Antichrist right now. Do you know that? If you're a Christian here today, you're not looking for Antichrist. You're looking for Jesus Christ. That's who we're looking for. That's who we're talking about. That's what we're waiting for. We see these seasons. We see these times. We feel in our heart and spirit that things are coming close. And we know, Lord Jesus, come. Come today. We don't go, hmm, I wonder when the Antichrist is going to show up. We don't have to worry about it because we won't be here, scriptures tell us. And there's so many stories in scriptures, I wish we had the time to get into it, that we, that we could prove that fact. But be that as it may, we know we're out of here. We go up to be with the Lord for seven years, and the Antichrist is able to then finally, the Christians are gone. That those people are gone, the ones that are always saying, hey, this is wrong. Hey, that's sin. Hey, that, that restraining force, hey, those people are gone. Now I can take the scene. And he does, and he will. And when he does, he has these fascinating ways of being able to fix the world's problems. And one of the major problems that the Jews have is they don't have a temple. Oh, there's plans. There's blueprints. You can actually uh, go on YouTube and actually see a rendition, a computer animation of what they plan on building. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But they can't build it yet. He will make it so. He'll have a treaty with them. He'll make a seven-year treaty with the Jews, and he'll allow them to build their temple. And then they will. And when the temple is done, they will have this relationship with the Antichrist. They'll think he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, and, and they will have this awesome relationship with him, and they will, they will enjoy what, the, uh, what he's allowed them to do. But... An abomination is going to happen. Another abomination will happen in the new temple. The Antichrist will go in, and just like Antiochus Epiphanes, he will demand to be worshipped, and he will march in at the three-and-a-half-year part. He'll march into the temple, and he will demand to be worshipped as God. And boom, that will be the... That will be the abomination at that moment. The Jews' eyes will be opened at that point. They will see the Antichrist for who he is. They will see him finally. And what does Jesus say? Run. Run. Get out. What does he say there? He says there, therefore you will see the abomination of desolation, speaking of that man who will go in. It's spoken of, it's, a, it's a, a story that we learned back in Daniel. Historically it happened, but it'll also happen in the future. And he says, standing in the holy place, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Get out of town. He says there, verse 17, let, who, let him who is on the rooftop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. Don't pack. Get out of there. As soon as you hear news that that happened, run. 
But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. They're to leave, they're to run, they're to go. As soon as you see that happen, get out of town as, soon, as fast as you can. But go where? It says to the mountains. And we had a wonderful teaching on this when we went through this with the junior high high school. What we learned and historians believe is that they will flee, they will run to a place called Petra. Petra, that current day place in Jordan where it was, it's basically a development, it was a, uh, an inhabitant for the, de the descendants of Esau, kind of like in this old volcano uh, crater that the entrance into this place is only like 12 feet wide. It's very easily defensible. Up to a million descendants of, of Esau live there. You can actually look it up. It was, it was uh, on a documentary not too long ago. I couldn't believe it. After we had taught on it, I watched it. It's fascinating, the splendor of this place. Historians believe, Jewish and Christian theologians, they believe that the place that the Jews will flee to and run and get away is to this rock city, Petra, a place carved out of stone, very easily defensible. You can't drive trucks and you can't drive tanks into this place. It's very narrow caverns are very easily defensible against any enemy attack. That's why those inhabitants lasted so long there. I'll read a scripture to you. You can actually see this. If you want to actually, you could turn there. Revelation chapter 12 also speaks of this event. Revelation 12. Revelation chapter 12, and I'll just, uh, we're going to be looking at verse 14. This gets into some very dynamic um, illustrative language, but I'll start in verse 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman who was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years in Bible speak. You know, a, a year, a year of seven, seven being a year, that would be uh, a year, a time, times, and half a times. Three and a half years is where they'll be. That's the second half of this tribulation. Going on there, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Scholars believe that this is the ancient city of Petra. As they go there, they'll be protected and they will run there. Now, it's interesting because this place was sort of a, it was sort of a wise tale. Nobody really kind of knew where it was for a very long period of time, for centuries. And finally, there was a, a, an explorer, a Bible scholar, Bible teacher, slash explorer. And his name was, let's see, I've got it written down here, Johann Burkhardt. He set out to find this ancient city of Petra. He, where is this place? And so in his exploring and discovering, he found it. And he was amazed. Rock carved statue, uh, pillars, temples, uh, places of business, everything's carved out of stone. If you look it up, you'll be fascinated. 
the, the people carved out of stone cisterns that held water. They had plumbing. They had all these things. They had everything they needed. This rock city was a defense against enemies. And he was walking around. But one of the things that we discovered, when he, when he showed up and he saw the entrance to this city of splendor, he saw carved eagle's wings above the temple, above the entrance, which is exactly what we're, we just read in Revelation. Just unbelievable what he saw. And then another discoverer in the 1800s, his name was W.E. Blackstone. He was also a Bible teacher, explorer. And so convinced was Petra, the place that these uh, Jews would flee to, that he actually took Hebrew New Testaments and he put them in cistern jars throughout the city. He kind of planted them there so that when they get there and they have they, they get to this refuge, this rock city Petra, they will be able to read the scriptures and he highlighted them. And people say they're still there to this day. I don't know for sure, but how neat of a story is that? That they would get there and they would have what's going on. They'll, they'll be just coming out of this deception of the Antichrist, fleeing for their lives, and sadly, two-thirds of them won't make it. One-third will. One-third will. But back to our scriptures, back to Matthew. He says, when you hear it, flee. Run to the mountains. Don't go back and pack your stuff. Don't go get anything. Verse 21, for there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world and, or until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders, and deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner room. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be in a blink. Jesus is coming back for us. It'll be so fast. For wherever the carcass is, therefore the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the heaven with, great, with power and great glory. Now that's actually, I'm told, Greg Laurie's favorite scripture because he kind of changes the words there. He says, coming in the, the clouds of heaven with power and Greg Laurie is what he reads, but be that as it may. <laughs> hey, it's a great play on words. I would have used it too. Verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Now, Jesus goes into another portion of scripture here. He's about to tell us a little parable, and this is fascinating. Verse 33, now, learn this parable from the fig tree. 
When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you'll also, when you see all these things, know that it is near and at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What's he talking about here? The fig tree. The fig tree has been and is a, a, a symbol of Israel. And we know that after 70 AD, you know, the Roman Empire, they finally came in and they just finally, they did away with the Jews. They dispersed them. People ran for their lives. Jew, Jews ran and they, they ended up going all over the world running from this empire because they did not see Caesar as their Lord. They would not worship him. So finally, you know what they said? They said, okay, we're going to put away this, this sect of people that will not proclaim Caesar as Lord. And so they went through and they, uh, they destroyed the temple, took over the city, and you guys know the story from there. The Jews were dispersed around the world. Now, the cool thing about that is that they maintained their identity for over 2,000 years. They maintained their identity as a people. They maintained their identity as a nation, as the Jews, for about 2,000 years. Isn't that amazing? History tells us that any civilization that's been broken up or disbanded or separated usually doesn't last longer than a couple of generations, not the Jews. For almost 2,000 years, they maintained their identity, even though they were dispersed throughout all the world, Russia, Europe, even uh, all, all over the place. We saw what happened to the Jews in World War II. And finally, this is what happened. The Lord gathered his people back together. You guys know through World War II, how the Jews, how Hitler, uh, you know, was trying to exterminate uh, what he would believe as, um, you know, the terrible people, the, the Jewish people. He was trying to exterminate them and, and kill off that people. But as they ended up surviving through that, the world for once finally had sympathy for the Jew. And so, May 14th, 1948, they were able to get their flag. They were able to come back to Israel, and they were able to have their nation once again. Historic. The people who read the Bible and understood the Bible and understood and studied prophecy must have been going crazy when the Jews finally came back from all over the world. It was a mass uh, transit back to the Middle East, back to Israel, because before that, for it would have been known for centuries as just... Palestine or Philistine land is what the Roman Empire just gave it to the, the Palestinians. And it was known as that for so many years. And now all of a sudden it's Israel again. Could you, could you imagine being alive in 1948 and, and seeing that scripturally and realizing, oh my goodness, you would realize this is huge. This is huge. The fig tree, it's blossoming. It's blooming. It was an old dead tree for Hundreds of years, it just looked like, how could that ever live again? And all of a sudden, the branch becomes tender. All of a sudden, it begins to blossom, and that's what takes place. Israel comes back, and they become a nation again, May 14th, 1948. But what Jesus says here is interesting. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. So what's the natural question? How long is a generation? 
Those people that saw, our, our grandparents, perhaps great-grandparents, saw this event, 1948. They saw this take place. Is it their generation? How long does a generation last? Well, some might say 40 years. Turn back with me to a passage I want to show you. Some people for many years thought this was the, the ticket. The book of Numbers, and I thank you for sticking with me today because I think this all ties in here in a couple of moments as we close the service. Numbers chapter 32. Turn back there with me, if you will. The natural question is, well, if the generation that saw this budding of the fig tree, the generation that saw Israel become a nation again, May 14th, 1948, a huge date as it relates to Bible prophecy and for us believers, the generation that saw that, if they won't pass away, well, how long does that generation last? That's the natural question. Now, we see here in Numbers, verse uh, chapter 32, verse 13, it says, so the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. How long did they go into the wilderness? 40 years until that generation had uh, died off. They were not allowed to go into the promised land. So is that a, a generation? Is that a Bible generation? If it's 40 years and you go May 14th, 1948, that would take us till when? 1988. Well, 1988 has come and gone, and so has the mullet. <laughs> the mullet, that haircut that I wish I could have but can't, the uh, business up front, party in the back haircut that everyone refers it to. It has come and gone just like 1988. However, did you guys know that the mullet is making a comeback? It is coming back for those of you who don't know. So guys, some guys like, hey, I, I never got rid of it because I always knew it would be back. So it's still with us. The mullet has come back. As of right now, Jesus has not yet. So is 40 years, is that the generation? Doesn't seem clear. Why don't we look at another reference of a Bible generation? Turn back with me to Genesis, the book of Genesis. This is a covenant that the Lord is talking to Abraham about. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, and he said to Abraham, or Abram at this time, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 15. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. But in that fourth generation, how long were they in bondage in, in Egypt? 400 years. And it seems clear here that he's saying, okay, in that fourth generation, he's basically calling the 100 years, 100 years a generation, because in the fourth generation, they will be 
released with great possessions, and that did come true, as you know. The Egyptians were tired of the plagues, the frogs, and the, the, the darkness, and, and the lice, and all of the plagues. They were like, just, just go, go. And so they did, and they gave them great possessions as they, as they left. But be that as it may, 400 years, and in that fourth generation, he says they would depart. Well, it seems clear that 100 years would be a generation here. Is that true? I don't know. These are things that we ponder. These are things that we see through a glass darkly and, and we try to make sense of. But what we do have is references like that to kind of make our minds think, okay, 40 years came and went. Year 2018 was 70 years. That was a neat time. We were like, ooh, could it be? You don't know. I don't know, 70 years. But what if it's 100? What if it's 100 years? Could you imagine? 2048? Is that so far off, 2048? Can you believe it's 2021? I can't believe it. There was a time where I couldn't believe the year 2000 would show up, and boy, that came and went too, didn't it? 2020, boy, that was a crazy year. Speaking of current events, speaking of things that we're seeing, and now even today, 2021, can you believe it? Does 2048 seem that far away? Not really. Time goes by so quickly, and sometimes it doesn't feel like it. But when you look back, you realize, wow, time's really gone. Look at my kids. Look how they've grown. Look at my parents. Wow. Time never stops for us. It just keeps going. So what do we do in the meantime? Could the Lord come back before 2048? Oh, absolutely. And deep down in my heart, I truly believe he will. That's my expectancy. I have this sense of expectancy of his return way before that. But what do we do in the meantime? What did we talk about earlier? Preach the gospel. Live our lives. Explain to people that hope that we have in us. And most importantly, it takes us to our last point. I want to have you jump over to verse 44. And we're going to close this morning. This is our takeaway. This is why it's so important for us to understand prophecy and these events. And again, you guys, I just, I just touched the top caps of, of this chapter. We could spend weeks <laughs> in this chapter, believe me, I have with our youth group, even more than that. But it gives us an understanding of where are we today? What is going on? We see the world around us. We see things that seem unexplicable. And, and we've seen things that even we have never seen in our lifetimes, but even our parents are saying the same thing, and our grandparents, and they're wondering. We're, we're like, wow, Lord, your coming must be so soon. He says in verse 44, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready. In an hour that we don't expect, do you expect the Lord to come back within an hour of right now? Do you expect him to come back before 1 p.m.? 
Do you expect him to come back before the Super Bowl starts? How many people would come up to the front after we're done and sign over their house and their bank accounts and their cars and sign everything over and you're, you're, just, you're laying it all out there. You're laying it all on the line. You're, you're saying, yes, without a doubt, he's coming back this hour. I know it. How many people would come up and do that? Not a lot of us, probably. Not a lot of us. And yet, he says that I will come back in an hour you do not expect. Interesting. An hour, um, 60 minutes, small amount of time when it's related to other things. But do we really believe that? Yes, we, we do in our hearts that, yes, the Lord is coming back. We know that. But he says, I'm going to come back in an hour you don't expect. I'm going to come back in a time it's going to be so quick, it's going to be so fast that you're not even going to know what's happening until you're up in the air with me. The trumpet will sound, and boom, there we are with the Lord. And we'll be like, what? <laughs> I didn't see that coming. I mean, I, Lord, I knew you were coming, but I didn't know it was going to be that minute, that hour, that moment. He says that. I will come back in an hour. You will not expect, verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant? whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. Blessed is the servant that is just going about doing what he is supposed to do with an expectation that his master could return at any moment. I don't know when. Jesus says that no man knows the day or the hour except the Father who's in heaven. The Father knows. He knows that moment when, okay, it's time. And boom, Jesus will come back for his church, his bride, you and me, if you have Jesus in your heart. And that hour will take us by surprise, the Lord says. And blessed are the servants that when he comes back, sees him doing the work of the Lord, sharing the gospel, even whether it's through words, as Augustine would say, if words aren't necessary, or preach the gospel at all times, even if, even if you're not speaking, I'd totally just trash that. <laughs> Some of you may know that better, but the point Augustine was making was like, you can share the gospel without even saying a word. That's what I was referring to earlier just being that silent witness, having the Lord in your heart, a smile on your face, that joy. And is it always going to be a fake smile all the time? No, there's going to be times where we hurt. There's going to be times where despair does take us. We will have those setbacks. And that's when, in reality, we tell people, you know what? Yeah, I'm hurting today. But at the end of the day, what I know is that Jesus loves me. And Jesus is coming back for me. I don't know when, but I look around I see the seasons, I see the times, and I sense that it's soon. I sense that it's soon. So what am I going to do? I want to be a good servant. I want to be one who is busy about the business of the Lord. And what is that? Sharing the gospel. Loving one another. What did we read earlier? That hatred and division, and we're seeing that. And the love of people, love of others grows cold. I don't want that. John did a great teaching the other night, Thursday night, and about love and loving one another. And I was like, yes, love one another. Even those who 
don't really even, I would never expect myself to love. I'm going to go out of my way to love that person. Sometimes that's hard, but that's being a good servant. Being about his business, serving and loving others, preaching the gospel, being that witness. He goes on to share, and we'll close with this. Verse 48. But if that evil servant says in, my, in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, and at an hour that he is not aware of. The evil servant, who's that? The word evil there in the Greek, the way it's put into this context, is something that was once good. Something that was once good but turned bad. It's likened to an instrument. These instruments don't tune themselves. As the musicians are up here and they play these instruments, eventually they'll go out of tune. And so the, the musicians know that before I play, I must tune this instrument. If it's not tuned, it'll sound terrible. It could go bad. And just like vegetables or fruit or food, it was once good and yummy, but it can go bad over time. That's the context of this word evil in this verse. A servant who was once good, but has turned bad. And what made this servant go bad? What does he say? Direct quotes. He says there, my master is delaying his coming. In other words, oh, he'll be back, I guess, but he's delaying. He doesn't have that expectancy that the good servant, the good servant saying, hey, my master could be back any moment. And it's not being eye service, it's just being that faithful servant to do what I need to be doing so that when he returns, he sees that, wow, you know, I, I did what you asked me to do. I did those things that you've, you've expected done, and I have done them to the best of my ability. And as that master returns, he's thinking, you know, the servant's thinking, he could be back any minute. But this guy, he's like, well, yeah, but, you know, he's delaying. He's not coming back anytime soon. And what we see, what the Lord tells us, is there's a danger. What happens? It says there, he begins to beat his fellow servants, chipping away at... We start looking horizontally and finding fault in others instead of looking up at our Lord, waiting, Lord Jesus, are you coming back today? You could. You could come back any moment. And instead, ah, he's not coming back today or tomorrow. The danger is that the person can, we can start looking at each other. And we can start chipping away at each other. We can start chipping away at our fellow servants and our, our, our brethren our sisters, we can start railing on each other and finding fault and pointing and, and chipping away at each other. That's the danger. Do you know, if we have an expectancy that Jesus could come back any minute, we're less likely to do that. Did you know that? I want to spend time loving you and building you up in the faith and, and, and making sure that, hey, are you okay? Can I pray for you? I want to lift you up and I want to build you up because, hey, the Lord could come back any moment. 
And how great would it be because it was so awesome. John said it this morning during communion. He said, wouldn't it be great if the Lord came back the moment we're taking communion? Like good servants doing the things that our master has commanded us to do and, and, and taking time for one another, building one another up and, and remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross, his broken body for us and the blood he shed for us so that we could have eternal life. That was the only way. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our master came back and saw us then? Wonderful. But what we don't want is, nah, yeah. You guys have been preaching the return of Jesus for how many decades? How many centuries? You know, yeah, I know, it's, it's gonna happen, yeah. But what will happen and the Lord tells us this danger, is now we start to kind of chip on one another. The next natural thing he says, if drawn to its conclusion, is it could even go into sinful living. He says there, he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. Oh, yeah, I mean, if you... If the Lord's, he's not coming back. You know, and, and what happens is we have a tendency in our human nature, we'll rail on each other, and things that would, would never be appealing to us before, we just don't have that sense of expectancy. We can fall into a life of carnality. That's not me saying it. That's Jesus. Jesus said that because he knows human nature. He knows our sinful nature. And that's what happens, and that's the danger. Goes on. Verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth heavy. Our encouragement this morning, my encouragement to you, I think the Lord would tell us all, is we want to have that expectancy for his return. We want to be ones that are, are just, Lord, you could come back today. You know, I hope he comes back before the Super Bowl. I do. I really hope he does come back before the Super Bowl because, you know, I don't want my friends that are uh, going for Brady to be disappointed when Mahomes takes his team to the victory. I don't want that for them. Because why? Because I love them. I love them. And I'm trying to build them up. So, you know, Lord, come back before the Super Bowl. I, I wouldn't miss that at all. Folks, here's the thing. We don't want to get comfortable in this life. We do not want to get comfortable in this world because you know what? If you're a Christian here today, you understand and realize that this world is not your home. And if we get comfortable and set in and, and we start kind of, kind of uh, embanking our ways and into this world system and start looking horizontally and, and that sort of thing, we, we kind of start getting dull to the idea that you know, Jesus could come back. Oh, yeah, we know. Yeah, he, he could come back. But, you know, he, he delays his coming because, man, I'm comfortable. And, and that's what the Lord's warning us about. Don't get like that. 
Don't be the person that's like, ah, you know, he's not, he's not coming back for a while because look, there's all these things that have to happen. Do you know, do you know, Christian, listen, not one thing prophetic in the Bible has to happen, not one more thing before the rapture. Do you know that? That's true. Not one more thing. We're not sitting here waiting for Israel to become a nation. Well, once that happens, ooh, be, be ready. Or, oh, uh, no, this war has to happen. That, that has to happen first. Okay, be ready. Not one more thing has to happen, which tells us this. The rapture literally could happen any moment. Do you have that expectancy in your heart this morning? I hope you do. This message is designed to encourage us and to build us up and to put that excitement in our hearts, in our lives. Why? Well, because we want the Lord to come back, amen? I don't know about you, but I'd rather be in heaven right now. But God's plan is unfolding right on schedule. And in the meantime, what you and I are to do is to have that expectancy and to have that knowledge and know that Jesus could come any moment. Why? Because it's going to determine how you and I treat each other. If Jesus, in my mind, is, could come back any moment, I want him to come back seeing me love you and seeing me build you up and you build me up, laying hands on each other and praying and doing the things that the Lord has commanded us to do. That's what we want. But if we just think, nah, that's been said. You know how many pastors and preachers talk like that every Sunday? And we just kind of put that off and back. We'll lose that expectancy, and that will have a direct effect on how we treat each other. Jesus just told us that. 